Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we're taking a look at the book of Genesis, which takes us back to our origins and answers the question, how did we get here? But maybe not in the ways you might expect. It's a story told through the eyes of men and women who are just trying to figure out why the world is the way it is. Men and women who loved and quarreled, believed and doubted, failed countless times, and yet fell into God's grace every time. By examining their stories, we find ourselves living variations of the same story, one of faith and doubt, failure and grace. By going back to their stories, we see that God has always been faithful, even from the very beginning. We're so glad that you're here and encourage you to attend in person if you're able. Our weekend services are on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and What surrounds you all the time, but you barely ever notice? Hair? That, that's, that's pretty good, actually. What? Oh, air. I thought you said hair. <laughs> uh, yes, I was because I was thinking, no, that's never a problem for me. Um, there's probably a thousand answers to that riddle. The one that we want this morning is dust. Dust. Have you noticed dust lately? Like on your TV screen? Uh, maybe on your car console? Bedroom dresser? Sometimes you notice dust when you turn the furnace on in the fall. Sometimes in Denver, you can actually see dust in a shaft of sunlight inside. Do you know uh, inside dust is most of our experience with dust? And uh, it's quite a cocktail, right? Inside dust, uh, hair, um, uh, mites, fibers, soil, pet dander, decaying insects, and dead skin cells. That's the, the brew, the Breckenridge Brewery of dust right there. The ancients had more outside dust, and outside dust is more from the ground. You know, in our world, we do see it at time. Well, there's a dust bowl. Uh, that's when there's not enough vegetation to hold the soil together, and a good wind can really stir it up. It, we've seen it in buildings imploding in our, in our world. Um, you know, I think we also think of dust when we're actually standing outside at a hole in the ground about four by eight by eight. And someone in black stands up and says, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This morning we're going to talk about dust. I'm hoping that if someone asks you, hey, what would you learn in church this week? And you could say, dust. Dust is the beginning of the story for us. And the end of the story. So I thought it would be appropriate for us as we enter the Genesis stories, as we enter this study of beginnings, to start with us, Adam and Eve, and us in them, dust 
to dust. So let me read the passage, invite you into it. Uh, I want to say, Holy Spirit, come. Come to us. Come as we hear your word. Come as we reflect on our lives, not only, you know, our personal situations, but what life means, how we got here, why we're here, and what happens when we're done. Dust to dust. Holy Spirit, come. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, and I'm going to read only verses 4 to 7. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man. The word in Hebrew is Adam, and it's Adam, it's the name Adam, but it's also the whole of humanity, Adam, from the dust, the dust of the ground. And the word ground in Hebrew, Adamah. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The word of the Lord. Now, in the book of Genesis, it begins with God. In the beginning, God. And the first movement of the book of, of God revealing himself to us and defining reality for us is to know that God created everything that exists. That's the beginning of the story. And that includes us as the pinnacle of his creation. But then our story shortly thereafter begins with us, God created everything that exists, and us turning away from God, wanting life on our terms, not trusting God but doubting him. And thus our story begins with breaking everything that exists and pushing away from the creator. So that after that moment happens, Adam and Eve and we and them, Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, we read this. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the Adamah. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Dust to dust is the human story. And you're saying, oh, great. Of all moments, you know, all Sundays I choose to come to church, we get dust to dust. There you go again, gloom and doom. I want to be happy when I leave church. So do I, actually. But I make no apology. I make no apology. Do you know that the church began in the catacombs in Rome, surrounded by corpses? Do you know that you would be 
fairly sobered this morning if you were to understand how many funerals have taken place in this room where you sit. I make no apology that our sacraments are about death, being buried with Christ in the waters of baptism, and then eating his broken body and drinking his blood. I make no apologies. I'm convinced it's the mission of the church to prepare the saints for a good death. And part of a good death is to actually think about death before it happens. Dust to dust. So what I'd like to talk about this morning is dust. We're going to talk about dust at the beginning of life, in the beginning of our story, and we're going to talk about dust in the middle of life, and we're going to talk about dust at the end of life. After the first movement, dust at the beginning of life, we're going to worship, and then we'll come back up after that and talk about dust in the middle and the end, and that will take us right to the table to be with Jesus. Dust at the beginning. What's surprising is that in the 70 times that the dust is used to describe the human story in the scriptures, the majority of those have to do with decay and decomposition and death. But what's surprising is at the beginning, it's life. Dust is a symbol of life. I mean, God speaks the dust into an embodied living soul before the fall when human beings still had an option to choose the tree of life and not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So before we sinned and broke everything, there was dust and dust became life. Now, that contrasts to the other surrounding creation origin stories. You know, Genesis 1 and 2 were written to be a pamphlet that Israel, as it neighbored its other surrounding nations, could talk and compare origin stories. And most other origin stories, like from the Babylonians and the Canaanites and the Sumerians and the Akkadians, all of theirs involved violence and chaos and and warring, and the gods were petty. And there's this, like, really, really, like, breaking bad into Ozark kind of feel from other creation stories, and you get a sense of, whoa. And then into this speaks the God of Israel who reveals himself. And if you read Genesis chapter 1, how do you read it? It's, it's a poem. It's orderly. It's rhythmic. It's good. And it's beautiful. And there's no sense of anxiety. There's no sense of dread. God blessed and double-blessed everything. And that speaks into the surrounding culture, hope and peace. And then in the Egyptian and Akkadian creation accounts, when it talks about the actual creation of human beings, it talks about them being clay, unformed clay. And it's, it's the gods who come in and become potters and craft the clay into human beings. But what's interesting in the Christian, well, in that Jewish Christian account, is that it's dust 
right? Have you ever tried to form the dust bunnies under your dresser into anything? They do not have it in themselves to form anything you'd want to craft. And what dust speaks of is our supernatural God-breathed origin. That God, the creator of heaven and earth, could speak dust into living embodied soul is power like no other God has power. That's what the creation account in the beginning of the story wants us to know. Power. 35 times in Genesis 1 and 2, God is the subject of the verbs. God blessed, God saw, God formed, God made, God created. And that word created in the first two chapters of Genesis is used 15 times, the word bara, and it's only used of God in the Bible. In other words, only God could speak dust into life. Only God could create new from nothing. It's power we're talking about, power. A power like no other, a God who speaks and it exists power. That's what we're to see in the creation account, that God is sovereign, unstoppable power. We see it how he speaks dust into existence. We see it in how he speaks dust into planets, right? It's interesting in scripture, whenever God is having dialogue with human beings and human beings are getting their dander up a little bit and thinking, well, I'm pretty special too, God, what's he do? He says, look up, right? Look up, see the galaxies. See the galaxies. See the galaxies, think about how they got there, and you will see my power, that I am a God like no other, that I am life itself. I don't borrow breath from anybody. We can't keep ourselves alive. God cannot go out of existence. It is an infinite power, a different power, and that's why the Bible calls God Holy, H-O-L-Y, because he is holy other, W-H-O-L-L-Y. God is holy, holy other, creator. But God says, look up, if you want to think about it for a while. And so we're going to look up just before we sing. We're going to look up, and what are we going to see? Well, I came across this great book, God of All Things, by Andrew Wilson. I would highly recommend it if you want to do stuff with your family, like around the dinner table or with friends. Short chapters. He takes things from the Bible like dust or like galaxies or like wine, you know, things, and he reflects on them, and it's a great worship book. Listen to Andrew Wilson in God of All Things reflect on galaxies, and then we'll praise God for his power. He writes, I find it difficult to fathom the size of the earth, let alone anything larger. The earth weighs around six million, million, billion tons. It's so big that it seems flat when you're standing on it, even though it is spherical. The earth's crust which feels pretty huge to me, you know, from the heights of Mount Everest to the depths of the Mariana Trench, is so thin relative to the rest of the planet that it is the equivalent of a postage stamp stuck on a soccer ball. Yet, in planetary terms, the Earth isn't large at all. 
It is a fraction of the size of Saturn and smaller than Jupiter's great red spot. Jupiter, however, is only one thousandth of the size of the sun. If the earth were the size of a pea, Jupiter would be a grapefruit and the sun would be a giant beach ball capable of holding 1.3 million Earths inside it and weighing 99.8% of the entire solar system. Every second, the sun loses 6 million tons of its mass, equivalent to 1 million African bull elephants. Yet, it doesn't even make a dent. But the sun is not a very big star. Compared to Arcturus, it is tiny, which is at this scale means that Jupiter is just one pixel and the Earth cannot be seen at all. Then we see Antares, the Greek word for red. It's the red star. Now, Arcturus looks like a pea next to Antares, and the sun is just one pixel, and Jupiter is invisible now. Antares is so fast, vast that we don't even know how big it is. But if it were placed at the center of the solar system, it would reach to somewhere between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. And it's not even the biggest star up there. V.Y. Canis Majoris is 30 times larger than Antares. But you have to stop somewhere. Most of us have never heard of Antares, but it will be up there quite happily tonight. You will see it, well, you'll see its rays from it that started coming to the earth over 600 years ago, offering a permanent challenge to God thinkers and God shrinkers in every generation. The question is why, why galaxies? Sometimes people wonder why God made galaxies. We could suggest some reasons. To humble us. To give us a taste of what infinite is like. To show creativity, to inspire us to worship, to help us understand phrases in the scripture like this, far more abundantly than we can ask or think. But, Andrew Wilson writes, I think God just did it for the fun of seeing our jars, jaw, jaws, not jars, jaws, fall open when we read Genesis 1.16, where God made everything in the heavens, and then in a throw-in sort of line says, oh, and he made the stars too. How strong is this God? How powerful is our God? And yet, he's a God who wants to come in with you this morning, sit right down next to you, and say, oh, yeah, you too. How are you doing today? Psalm 103, verses 11 to 14. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. 
As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, who, who worship him reverently. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Dust, would you, would you stand? And let us praise the power of the Creator together. Please be seated. Don't leave. Please stay. Force of habit. We are now, by the invitation of Jesus, walking to the Father's table where we will sit in his presence today. And the conversation around that communion table is dust. <laughs> dust at the beginning, dust in the middle, dust in the end. Dust in the middle. You know, I'm talking about, remember a few years back there used to be this popular thing going around the internet called the dash, right? Between the year you were born and the year that you will die, there's the dash and your life is the dash. Think of that. Our life is the dust in the middle. That God, as, as Brian just said, that he makes beauty out of ashes. He, he puts his image on the dust. And I want to talk about that. I, so when you're reading the creation accounts, you'll notice something very interesting when you go from the end of chapter 1, first three verses of chapter 2, the seven days of creation in this theological masterpiece that Genesis 1 is, this poem. And then 2 is kind of the story and the narrative of how it all went down. And what you notice is a name change. In the first chapter, it was all God did this, as we said, 35 times. God, God, God. You get to chapter 2 and verse 4, and you see, oh, wait, Lord God. And everything from that point forward is Lord God. And the Lord is in all caps. That's the English way of translating a Hebrew name of God. You may have heard it before, Yahweh. That's the name that God gave to Israel when he was about to deliver them from the slavery in Egypt. And the people in Israel were saying, well, who, who should we tell everyone is sending us out of Egypt? Moses is saying, who should I tell them, Israel, that is sending them? And God says, tell them Yahweh is sending them. I am Lord in all caps. It's the personal name, the self-given name. God wants to be known by this name personally, not just kind of generic God, the powerful one, but also the Lord, Yahweh, the I am, the one who will never quit. And this is the idea, I think, why the switch? The one who will never quit on the human project. Even though we've turned our back time and again, Yahweh, the covenant God, the one who makes promises and will keep them, he will never stop loving the human race. And then from there, you notice the name change. And then again, especially if you're in the original audience reading Hebrew, you would notice, hmm, interesting. When he says that in Genesis 2, 7, that he's going to breathe into the dust, that word breathe is a rather sparse, unique word. Usually the word for breathe is the Hebrew word ruach. 
And we've heard that word, it's 400 times in the Old Testament. It's the word for wind or spirit. It's the name of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It's the, it's the animating life force that keeps insects alive and animals alive and you and me alive. We have Ruach in us too. That's, that's kind of the life force of God. But this is not that word. In Genesis 2-7 when it says God breathed life into the dust, it's the Hebrew word nasamah, which is a word that means breath, but it's a breath that gives life in kind. In other words, what scholars think, and I agree, is that when God says in Genesis 7 that he breathed life into the dust, he's talking about the image of God that he's breathing in. In other words, what makes a human the pinnacle of creation? Why does God say about human beings it's good and very good? It's because he's breathed the image of God into human beings. What's that mean? That means that unlike any other living creature in the world, human beings can think. And they can make rational decisions most of the time. And they have choice, which is the essence of love and covenant. God will never quit on us. But human beings, we struggle with choices and choice. It's the idea of a person being moral and having a conscience. It's the idea of a person being creative. It's the idea that human beings reflect and project who God is to one another. Because we're all made by him, his image is breathed into us, and thus we are little gods, reflections, running around and projecting the beauty of God to one another. No matter if you're a believer or not, every person. By the way, this is why human being, I mean, uh, Christians, the Christian worldview, takes such a strong stand on life. From in the womb to the very last minutes of life, all through, we are pro-life. Why? Because every person has had the image of God breathed in them, which means they have unimaginable worth and inviolable dignity. And so we stand for life because of the image of God. And that also factors into our ethics with one another. James, for instance, the half-brother of Jesus writing in the New Testament, in chapter 3 of his letter, James, he talks about how that even when we're talking with our enemies or about our enemies, I think he has Facebook in mind. <laughs> he says, you talk in such a way that you remember they are made in the image of God. That should transform our discourse, especially with people with whom we disagree. They, too, are a piece of work, God's work. So we air our grievances differently in light of the image of God. What's interesting, so the text says, the Lord God, who will never give up on the human race, he breathes his image into human beings and only human beings. 
And then what does he do? He puts him in a garden to work. So I want to take just a few moments and talk about this dusty middle that the primary activity we do reflecting God's image is work. I want to talk about work for just a moment. I know, it's Sunday, right? Come on. No, this is really, really important. I, I think we struggle with work. I read of a survey last week where 43% of Americans are miserable in their work. That's half of Americans. It'd be an elephant in the room here. It'd be interesting to take a poll, but I won't. How many of us are miserable on the job? Now, I think sometimes that misery, and by the way, I think that's why unemployment is devastating to the soul. I think that's why, and I've seen this, people come into a lot of money and they decide they're going to quit work, and no matter how much money, they're miserable. They're not working. And I have seen this too. I've seen people work hard and retire early and then get to whatever they thought they wanted to do. And is, is this it? This doesn't feel like it. I've seen it. Work. Part of the image of God is that we're made to work. We don't work to live. We live to work. More on that in a moment. Hold on to that. I want to talk about the misery for a moment. I think sometimes we think work is a curse and it happened when we sinned. No, that's wrong. Work was a blessing, the first blessing, in fact, when God created us in his image, breathed life into the dust, put us in a garden, he said, work, and that's the blessing. Work is a blessing. We are wired to work. The curse part comes in after we sinned and break everything. It says in Genesis 3 that we, it will be painful toil to work. It will be thorns and thistles, which you could substitute there, blisters and ibuprofen and sore backs and workers' comp, and sleepless nights, and ulcers. Work is the blessing that's become hard. That is a fact. And we go through those seasons, we endure those seasons. Let me give you something, though, that I think can help with endurance. And that's a frame of work. How a Christian views work. Two things. One, all work matters to God. I think the lie in the church is sometimes we think, well, the work that really matters is to be a pastor or a missionary or to be, you know, in the healthcare world or a first responder, you people who are hands-on with people. Those are the jobs that really get elevated. Everything else, menial. That's a lie. That's wrong. All work matters to God. I thought about this last week when I was traveling to Pennsylvania, but I know there's people in Pennsylvania watching. Hi, Mom. Hi, Josh's mom. There's people watching. I was flying back, and it dawned on me, thinking ahead to this message, do you know how many people it's taken just to get me from Denver to Pennsylvania and back? There was those people with the batons doing this with the planes. There was those people getting me in the right seat on the plane, those people serving me drinks on the plane. There was those people who were cleaning the bathroom when I had a four-hour layover in Charlotte, a guy named George, a beautiful black brother in Christ, and we had some great conversations because I use the bathroom a lot these days, and um, <laughs> I told him when I left, George, the city of Charlotte, North Carolina, should pay you an extra fee for being the welcoming face of the city. 
He's a beautiful man. And he's cleaning bathrooms. And he matters to God. And his work is a beautiful thing. All work matters to God. And as long as it's legal, it matters. I think the second lie we buy into, though, and this is from like outside the walls of the church, the second lie we buy into is that we think work is a way to get what we really want. We, we think we work to live. In other words, we work hard so that we can get the retirement we want. We work hard so that we can live in the house that we want. We work hard so that we can have the vacations we want. And if that's your view of work, you will need a vacation, but what you really need is a vocation. You need a call in your work. We work to live. I, I'm talking mainly about compensated work, and it's great when the compensated work overlaps with the sense of call, but I think even in a call, I guess what I'm fighting for is no matter what you do, as long as it helps human beings flourish, it's your calling. And I think we need to see it and elevate it to that degree that here we are, dust in the middle, but God is elevating his image in the dust and saying, you are helping me help the earth flourish. I want you to think greatly about your work. God wants you to think greatly about your work and that you work to live. Let me share a quick story. This is from a pastor up in Portland named John Mark Comer. He was on vacation in Disneyland and uh, he was impressed with the guy who was driving the tram to get them from the Pinocchio lot to the front gate. This guy was older, he was witty and smart and excelled at conversation, got to know people in a quick uh, amount of time. And John McComer got to think, what gets a person to, to tram driving? And then here's what he said. The last morning, we were on the tram and I asked, okay, you, I need backstory. Have you always been a tram driver? Or were you like a bus driver before that, or what? And he said, well, I was a four-star general in the United States Army. I was the number two in command for Operation Desert Storm under Norman Schwarzkopf. And after the war, I made a bunch of money, and with my military pension, I retired early, had my health care, moved to Southern California because I love golf. I played golf for two years, and I was miserable. And my wife said, if you don't get a job, I'm getting a divorce. <laughs> I thought it over and decided it would be fun to work at Disneyland. And he was happy as a lark, Comer says. After taking over the Middle East, he's driving you to the Pinocchio section. <laughs> Why is that? He's a guy at the top of his game, money, fame, all that, he quits early, lives the dream, Southern California, golf, and he's miserable. Why? Because the lie is, you work to live. The truth is, you live to work. You were made by God to work, to create, to bring shalom, to make the world into a place for human beings to thrive in his presence. That's dust in the middle. Whether you're retired or not, you know, I'm not down and I hope to retire myself and I'm making all kinds of preparations, but I don't ever see myself retiring 
just to get up in the morning and play. Actually, I'll get to go do some things that I feel specifically wired to do and haven't been able to yet. Jan would tell you, it's to be a greeter at Walmart. I know that I will thrive, and I will make some of you happy on a certain day. Watch and see. Dust in the beginning, dust in the middle, dust at the end. Here we go, right? Dust in the end, death. Death. From the very beginning of our story, we know that the statistics are pretty good on death and that it's dust in the end. Here's the thing, though, and you see this threaded throughout the whole story of the Bible, that there would be a promise from the earliest moment. You know, we don't know how many minutes, but like moments after Adam and Eve sinned, God, the Lord God, the one who will never quit on the human race, Adam and Eve were trying to hide their sin and hide their shame. And God says, no, I'll cover you. Skins of animals. And God says in Genesis 3.16 that yes, the serpent, he's going to bite the heel. And there will be pain and death. But the seed of the woman pointing to Jesus will come and crush the serpent's head. And he will conquer death. So even though dust is the last word on your life, dust will live and its power and life again. And you will be dust with no dead skin cells. You will be dust outfitted for eternity. You will be the same kind of dust that Jesus is now in his physical resurrected body. It's beginning to end dust, but it's good dust, it's hard dust, and it's eternal dust. Eternal dust we are. Daniel saw it in a vision. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. We see it in Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15, and just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, dusty Adam, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man, eternal dust Jesus. That is us. And so, you know, beginning dust, we see God's power and we worship. Middle dust, we see God's provision for the race by putting his image in dust and creating humans to work and care for the world. And the eternal dust is this good news. Paul described it in 2 Corinthians 4 that you and I, because we now have this dust in us now, the future has invaded our present and we know even though we die, we live, that we are now, I love this phrase, Paul says, we are the aroma of Christ to those who, who are perishing. The aroma of Christ. One of the ways people smell that, <laughs> it sounds terrible to say it this way, but one of the ways people smell us as the church in the world 
is by the words that we say, the blessing words. You go back to the creation account, you see God speaking life again and again. He saw it and it's good and he blessed it. He saw it, it's good, he blessed it. Saw it, it's good, he blessed it. We pick up now that work of the creator because now eternity has invaded the present. We see it, it's good, we bless it. We use our words now to speak life into people. One of the primary tools that we have to to engage the world and to make the church winsome is to practice resurrection by speaking blessing to people. Folks, you know it. The last two years, oh my goodness, we live in a blessing-starved world. We live in a world where people think they are damaged goods because no one blesses them. And we who are carrying the aroma of Christ, this life, we should be leaders in blessing. Waterstone should be a blessing factory where we're using our words to bless, to speak life. Let me close with this story, and then we're going to sit down at the table. This is from a writer named Marianne Bird. She writes, I grew up knowing I was different. I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate. When I started school, my classmates made it clear how I looked to others. Little girl, misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, garbled speech. When schoolmates asked, what happened to your lip? I'd tell them I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced nobody outside my family could love me. And then there was a teacher in the second grade. I adored her, Mrs. Leonard. Annually, we had a hearing test. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everybody in the class. Finally, it was my turn. I knew from past years that we would stand against the door, cover one ear, and the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper to see if we could hear her. And she'd whisper, and we'd have to repeat it back, something like, the sky is do you have new shoes? When it came to my turn, I waited for the words. God must have put in her mouth these living words, these seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard said in a whisper, I wish you were my little girl. She blessed her and spoke life into her. May we use our words to practice resurrection. And now we come to the table. We sit down with Jesus. There's the Father. The discussion around the table is life in the be- uh, dust in the beginning, dust in the middle, dust in the end. And the Father says, thank you, Jesus. You have made all of us my daughters and my sons. So we come to the table. The night on which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. He broke it. 
He said, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. In the same way, after the Passover meal, he took the cup. He said, this cup represents my blood poured out in a forever covenant to forgive sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. <laughs>